Hello, Marvelites! Welcome to another episode of This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Marvel's Agent M, joined by... Marvel.com editor Ben Morse, and this is another one of our special Marvel 75th anniversary podcasts. We are joined for the third time this year, a pleasure and a treat, by our favorite historian, Peter Sanderson, who has made the trek once again into New York City. Peter, how was your uh, trip today? Warm. Warm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What did you take to get in? The tr- train from New Jersey. Okay. And then walked from Penn Station. All right. Ooh. It's a hearty mm-hmm. walk. All right. Very impressive. But you are here today not to talk about your uh, transit, although I'm glad we covered that. Yep. Uh, but we're moving on to the 1970s. Uh, in the history of Marvel. If you guys want to go back and listen to our previous episodes, we have already covered the Golden Age. We talked about the 60s. Uh, The 60s, we had a lot to talk about. I think we actually ran out of time there. Um, But the 70s is a very interesting time. It's, once again, a transformative time. The 60s, uh, Marvel really got established. All the big characters got created. But the 70s, you had a new crop of creators, which I know you want to talk about. Um, And then you had characters kind of pushing the boundaries of different genres whether it was going into space going into horror doing all sorts of stuff and other things going on but to begin with kind of set the scene for us as we're going from 1969 into 1970 what's going on in the world and how is marvel reflecting that well what's going on in the world yeah <laughs> what's going in the on in the world is that the 60s is is a time of cultural revolution not just in comics mm-hmm but in politics, in fashion, in music, in um, liberation movements for African Americans, for women, for gays. It's it's a transformative period in American history, and a lot of this is because of the rise of a new generation, Mm -hmm. the baby boomers, of which I'm one. Mm. And... What's happening is that this generational shift affects Marvel. Well, of course, Stan and Lee and collaborators Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and so forth, they, in the 60s, they are creating these, these comics that fire the imagination of the new generation that's growing up. That You have to keep in mind that Stan and Jack themselves were middle-aged guys who were creating, in effect, this youth movement that very few people had entered the comics industry in the, in the 50s and the early 60s. If anything, hundreds of people left the comics industry never to return because of the anti-comics movement of the 50s with Dr. Wertham and Congress and claiming that com- comics caused juvenile delinquency and sales plummeting. But it's in the 60s, you start getting people who are reading what Stan is doing and are getting excited about it and want to go into comics. And this story really begins in 1965 when Roy Thomas arrives, mm. and he, who is the first really major figure of a new generation after Stan's to come into Marvel. And keep in mind, 65 is only four years after the Marvel Revolution began. Mm-hmm. When I was recently going over my research two nights ago. This sort of amazed me how early some of these people showed up. Um, Roy was from Missouri. He was an English teacher, like I was going to be at one point. Um, He came to New York, was working for DC Comics, 
couldn't put up with the uh, Superman editor Mort Weisinger, who mm-hmm. was <laughs> apparently an insufferable person, mm-hmm. and who was also the mentor of young Jim Shooter, a story we will get to later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but so Roy uh, quit really fast and went over to Marvel, uh, got a staff job, and by 1966, I mean, he started out, I think his first story was for Modeling with Millie, and mm-hmm. his first regular series was Sergeant Fury. But, I mean, Stan's writing everything. He and he, you know, it's a huge burden. So he's t- he wants to be able to turn over series to newcomers, and Roy's the first one. In, by 1966, he is writing the X-Men. The first X-Men comics I ever read are ones Roy wrote. Mm-hmm. And by the end of 1966, he's also taken over the Avengers. And again, the first issue of the Avengers I ever saw was one by Roy. Um, there are a few more, more people who show up in the in the 60s of note. Denny O'Neill's briefly present in the 60s. Doesn't stay long, but mm-hmm. long enough to name Clea in the Doctor Strange strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, Archie Goodwin shows up in 1968 and starts writing Iron Man, although he leaves to come back later. Mm-hmm. But by what you've got is by 1972, a big traditional year, that's when Martin Goodman retires as publisher Stan Lee takes over as publisher, appoints Roy to be editor-in-chief. Now, Roy has already taken over X-Men, Avengers, various other series. He's writing Samaritan, he's writing Doctor Strange. He, and as editor-in-chief of Marvel, he is, presides over bringing in a whole generation of new writers and artists who are going to transform the company. Because pretty much by 72, when Stan becomes publisher, that's pretty much much when he stops writing mm-hmm. the comic books, although he keeps doing the Spider-Man comic strip, as he's still doing today. <laughs> but it's uh, but you have this big generational change. You've got people who grew up in the 60s in that kind of rich cult, very influenced by Stan's comics, very influenced by the cultural currents of the 1960s, and in the 70s, they're taking over writing Marvel comics. So who are some of the major players of the 70s as we move throughout? Who are some of the writers, artists, and editors who ended up really making this shift happen? Oh, well, let's see. I can name a whole bunch. Uh, <laughs> maybe I can go through them, like one, mention some names one at a time. Sure. And, you know, because it really, it's really sort of amazing how well most of these people turned out. Mm-hmm. Um it's sort of a cast of stars. One of, one of the first was Jerry Conway, who was, took over writing Spider-Man from Stan when Conway was, I think, 20. Wow. Wow. And Conway became one of the top writers at Marvel. He became, a, like many of the people I'm about to mention, he was editor-in-chief for a while. Yep, yep. Um, it's kind of a rotating chair. For yeah, it was a rotating chair through much of the 70s, and we'll yeah. probably get into that. But it's... Um, but Jerry was Stan's first real successor, apart from some fill-ins that Roy had written, mm-hmm. on Spider-Man. And Jerry is responsible for two things that had major impact for the course of, Mar- of Marvel history as a Spider-Man writer. Mm-hmm. He killed Gwen Stacy. <laughs> and as Kurt Music and Alex Ross pointed out in their Marvel series, this was a real turning point. I mean, it really wasn't the tradition of what Stan was doing mm-hmm. because 
Stan was not afraid to kill off characters. And should I point out, as I probably will a number of times in these podcasts, there was a time when death at Marvel was real, <laughs> and death at DC was real, too. Mm-hmm. And the death of Gwen was real. Uh, but this was a sign to, view, to readers that this was Marvel, uh, the seriousness of Marvel's approach to the stories, that their happy endings were not guaranteed, that the whole point of Stan's revolution was, what if you had superheroes in the real world with real personalities and real consequences to what you did? And sometimes they're not going to succeed. Sometimes, they, sometimes the person they're trying to save is going to die. Sometimes they will fail. Sometimes, as with the death of Uncle Ben, Spider-Man will be part, even partly responsible for it because as uh, one of the little bits that Jerry put into the story was that Gwen actually dies when Spider-Man catches her. Right. That's the impact of being caught. Um, the other thing that Jerry did in his early years as Spider-Man writer was he introduced this new character called the Punisher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I, we shouldn't say that this is the st- that Marvel turned grim and gritty in the 70s because right. the Punisher did not get his own ser- first series until the until 80s. The 80s. Right. He was just a guest star in the mm-hmm. 70s. But nonetheless... This was a vigilante who killed criminals, and killing was not something that superheroes did. And he proved to be, he was introduced in Spider-Man, he proved to be a popular character. Sometimes he's treated as an antagonist, sometimes as the ally of Spider-Man or other heroes. Sometimes a hero of of his own stories. Mm But this was, you know, just as we will doubtless get to with another character who shows up in the 70s, Wolverine, Mm. this is a sign of things to come. Well, Punisher is also, I would imagine, a sort of reaction to some of the things going on in pop culture and movies, you know, at that time. Oh, sure. Things things like Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson's Death Wish movies at the time, which which, uh, for younger readers who don't, don't know, because I don't think these movies are revived for... By much, Charles Bronson in the Death Wish movies was playing this New Yorker who was taking the law into his own hands mm-hmm. and, as a vigilante going out and shooting criminals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Punisher was inspired by at least one ca- character in that was popular in novels at the time, mm-hmm. who was again this sort of vigilant. So the, these vigilantes were were prevalent in the culture of the early seventies, and in fact, this is something else that should be a theme of that's a theme of Marvel in the seventies, which is that Marvel is tapping into a whole lot of currents in popular culture, not just superheroes. And again, this is doubtless something we'll get to later on in this podcast. But to continue our list of stars of the seventies, mm-hmm. and this is going to be like an incomplete list. Oh well. If, there are a few who, a few others who arrived in the '60s, mm-hmm. in the late '60s. We have Jim Steranko, mm-hmm. who sh- showed up in '66, I think, mm-hmm. and who quickly took over as not just artist but writer of Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, and did things with that series that have never been duplicated in comics since. He was not just influenced by what Stan and Jack were doing, but he was a he, like Roy, had tremendous knowledge of Golden Age comics. He was a big fan of pulp novels. He was paying attention to what was going on in culture. I mean, he was obviously, if Stan and Jack's 
uh, Nick Fury was sort of like based, sort of inspired by the man of what if you put like a regular gu- guy who doesn't shave very much in the role of the man from Uncle Sterankel turned it into outright James Bond mm-hmm. and like the his big Hydra Island Baron Strucker storyline is you know this this could be like, this is the same this is like doing in comics form what the movie You Only Live Twice did in yeah. establishing sort of the modern Bond template uh, for movies and um and Sterenko was also tr- tremendously influenced by things that were going on in the fine art world in the 60s, like pop art. Mm-hmm. And all of this goes into what he was doing in, in S.H.I.E.L.D. And these things, stories are still amazingly vivid and energetic 40, 50 years later. You also have Neil Adams showing up towards the end, yes. of, the si- to end of the 60s, who had this sort of heightened photorealistic style that he had developed in working in advertising and in newspaper comic strips. So he was blending that, sort of like the, the, he used to ghost for a while Stan Drake's The Heart of Julia Jones. He was taking on, sort of merging that style with the leak, with the Jack Kirby style and creating the, the this astonishing new look for super, superhero. At first at DC and the Marvel, came on to the Avengers and the X-Men. Mm-hmm. The X-Men, when it was dying, mm-hmm. yeah. it was, he came on too late to, to save it from cancellation. And that's another story to get to but making a big impact. But yeah. back to the seven people who arrived in the 70s, we have the team of Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, yeah. friends who grew up in New York C- City who, and who both ended up being editor-in-chief at Marvel for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Marv is probably best known in the 70s at Marvel for, cre- for his work on the Tomb of Dracula series, mm-hmm. which he did not create, but which he took over early on, mm-hmm. and which was, uh, again, this is a theme topic to to get to a little later, uh, Marvel's expansion into classic horror material. Yeah. But Tomb of Dracula is a landmark. He was team, teamed up with the great art, artistic team of Gene Cullen and Tom Palmer on the mm-hmm. series. And again, it remains a classic in part, large part because of the depth of characterization he gave to Dracula. No cardboard villain here. Yeah. But a man of genuine nobility, uh, someone who you felt who was vulnerable at times, someone who, whose point of view you could understand. And shall we also also point out that first, you know, uh, Jerry Conway wrote the first Tomb of Dracula, Archie Goodwin came on li- shortly afterward and created this character, Rachel Van Helsing, and Marv sort of finished the work of creating this little band, mm-hmm. this little, mm-hmm. oh, what could we call it? A Scooby gang, sort of, <laughs> of vampire hunters, one of whom was this determined blonde woman who had made her career into vampire slang and carried a crossbow. <laughs> and one imagines the young Joss Whedon, <laughs> known Marvel fan, reading these books. Yeah. And also paying attention to, say, another character that Marvel created and Gene co-created, Blade, who yeah. used these wooden blades. And, uh, and this character, Hannibal King, that created, who was this vamp- good vampire who turned into a detective. And again, again, it's so... Yeah. I'm not... Uh, I'm just saying it's be interesting to know what Joss <laughs> yeah. Whedon was reading at this point. Yeah. Uh, we have Len Wein, who, uh, who's pro- who Marvin Len during during the 70s they were got to draw all pretty much all the top books. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, again we should, well maybe this is a good point time to uh, go into it since we're discussing Len. Mm-hmm. Um, the X Men. When Stan and Jack did it, always an interesting series. Roy did wonderful work on it. The Roy and Neil issues towards the end are amazing. 
but the sales were never that good. And believe it or not, kids, it died. It got yeah. canceled, and it was a, and then it went into re, it became a reprint series. Mm -hmm. And however, Marvel wanted to bring it back, and I've done a lot of research into what happened in this. You know, there are various stories. What's going on? But it seems, but they did want to bring back the X-Men. This is like mid-70s. And what I've pieced together is that Stan wanted, thought that if they brought back the X-Men and they made it a series with characters from different countries, that would appeal to foreign markets. Right. Now, if you look at the, uh, the X-Men who arrived in the mid-70s, okay, I could sort of see German, Nightcrawl Germany mm -hmm. and Banshee Ireland and even Sunfire Japan, but how much of a market was there for Marvel in Africa, the Storm, and the Soviet Union mm -hmm. for Colossus? I don't know. But anyway, Roy Thomas, who was edit, editor-in-chief in the, in the 70s, he, at this period in the 70s, he liked the idea because he's a Golden Age fan and he liked the old quality comic series Blackhawk created by Will Eisner, mm. which was about a band of freedom fighter aviators, each of whom came from a different country. And apparently Roy, so Roy started thinking about this and apparently he asked Len, he said, gave him an idea, at least this is a story I found out years ago, and I think there are variations on there are varying accounts of this, but that Roy came up with the idea, let's do a Canadian mutant named Wolverine to put in the X-Men that we're, new X version of the X-Men that we're developing. So mm -hmm. in 1974, Len, as writer of The Incredible Hulk, aided and abetted by John Romita Sr., who designed, who was so art director and character designer, mm -hmm. who had also been the character designer for The Punisher, and Herb Trimpey, who drew the Hulk book, put together this character who turned up in an issue of The Incredible Hulk, Wolverine. Mm -hmm. And a year later, Len and Dave Cockrum... There's a full year between those? Yeah, I didn't some, it was that maybe long. not a full... Well, maybe not a full 12 months, but okay. Wolverine was in The Hulk is 74. The okay. giant size X-Men number 75. one is 75. And Wolverine is a member of that team, along with Storm and Nightcrawler. And... Banshee and briefly Thunderbird and briefly Sunfire and Cyclops and the professor's still running the show and and so this this debuted but Len as I said was writing the top books mm -hmm. and doubtless not having any idea of what the future would hold <laughs> decided after writing Giant Size and plotting the first two issues of the revived series, that he didn't have time what with doing the FF and so forth, to do to write X-Men regularly as well. So he turned it over to this guy who had started as a gopher, an intern mm, right. at Marvel in 1969. Again, yeah. less than 10 years after the Marvel Revolution started. Yeah. This is a guy who was recommended to Stan by Al Jaffe. Mm. who worked at Marvel mm. back in the 40s. Uh, this was this young student from Bard College who wanted to be an actor, <laughs> born in London, grew up in New York, named Chris Claremont, ends up scripting the first two revived issues of the X-Men, and history goes on mm. from there. So there's another star who arrives right. in the late 60s, early 70s. We also have, let's see, 
we have the two Steves. Steve Engelhart and Steve Gerber, again brought in by Roy. Um, Engelhart took over a number of, not the really top series, but sort of like, but still, series that Stan was associated with on Avengers. He, he uh, oh well, Roy had already, when he took over, when, when Roy took over Avengers and X-Men in the 60s, you could tell that this was somebody who really loved the Marvel Universe mm. and was just aching to get his hands on a lot of these characters. And in fact, Roy was sort of like building, he was sort of, seemed to be consciously building upon what Stan did to sort of mold it into a united Marvel Universe. Right. So that one of his great successes in the, uh, writing the Avengers in the early 70s was the Kree Skrull War, which was the longest storyline, continuing storyline Marvel had done to that point. And you know, there are, you know, you can look back in the sixties and there's like 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 there's periods where one Thor story leads on to another, so it's like a year's worth of Thor stories happening within two days. But the, they're still different stories. Yeah. But this is one big story saga and basically Roy putting together two alien empires that Stan Jack had created at Fantastic Four separately. Well, what happens if they collide? Um, Engelhart is building upon this when he takes over the Avengers, so he has does like the Celestial Madonna saga, uh, which again involve in the course of which, uh, which has this sort of, which is sort of consciously mythic in sculpt, the Mantis, the Celestial Madonna, who is going to be the mother of the most, the being for who's prophesied to be the most powerful being in the cosmos. And you've got, um, and in the course of this storyline, he actually does the origin of the Kree Skrull War, the origin oh. of the Kree. Uh, Engelhardt is also much more p political than Stan had, or Roy had been. So that in the Capt Captain America, first of all, he does the story, since Stan had had, and Jack had had, established that Cap had disappeared at the end of World War II and got revived in the 60s for suspended animation. Well, who's that Cap who was around the 50s? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Engelhardt explains, well, this is this sort of right-wing fanatic Captain America. Yeah. And this is Engelhardt being able to do a political story about what was excessive about the McCarthy era mm -hmm. of the 50s. And then he has this story, and even more, more famously, he does the storyline a secret about the secret empire, a COVID organization that Stan and Jack had created, that is meant to be a, meant to be a parallel to the Watergate crisis of the seventies, which ends with Engelhardt implying that the secret empire conspiracy was run right out of the Oval Office, yeah. and um, and Cap becoming so disillusioned that he gives up being Captain yeah. America for a while and takes on the identity of Nomad, the Man Without a Country. Also, Engelhardt did amazing work with first with Frank, artist Frank Bruner, and then with Gene Colan on Doctor Strange. Mm. And you know, fans used to think, "Oh, Stan and Steve Ditko were they on drugs when they were doing that?" <laughs> no, they just had wild imaginations. Yeah. But Engelhardt was again; he was tapping into the psychedelic um, literature and artwork of the period, and so he was again and working that into Doctor Strange. So you have this. This storyline, for example, in which Strange goes into the orb of Agamotto, and he, uh, or is it the, 
the orb of the eye, eye, and goes into the world inside, <laughs> world inside it, and where he meets Agamotto, who is this talking caterpillar out of yeah. Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> and where, where he confronts all of these surreal figures and ends up with a confrontation with death incarnate. Now, then there's the other Steve, Steve Gerber, mm -hmm. and from Missouri, like Roy, uh, so who used to work at an ad agency where he was being driven mad, <laughs> as uh, figuratively, but later became the source of Song Cry of the Living Dead Man, one of his famous stories from, yep. from Man-Thing. One way to explain Steve Gerber, the late Steve Gerber, unfortunately, is that um, the kind of, say, sophisticated, supernatural fantasy stories and science fiction stories that we associate now with writers like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman. He was doing this stuff back in the 70s. He yeah. was way ahead of his time. Yeah, for sure. And again, again the, the series in which he made his mark was Man-Thing, and this mm -hmm. was a creation of Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway's and artist Gray Morrow's. Gerber ended up taking over the series, but he was using it to do psychological horror stories of a level with a skill at characterization, uh, uh, a skill at moving beyond melodrama into tragedy even, mm -hmm. that was way ahead of his time for comics. Really groundbreaking. On the other hand, his better-known series, his best-known series for Marvel, is a spin-off from Man-Thing, in one Man-Thing storyline, uh, <laughs> the multiverse is going crazy. The, the, the swamp in which Man-Thing, the swamp, swamp monster lives, is the nexus of all realities. And you have beings from all these different realities turning up at the nexus, one of whom happens to be this talking duck named Howard, yep. who becomes immediately hugely popular with the readership. <laughs> right. And it, it's sort of like this... It's ironic take on Karl Barks's famous Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge stories mm -hmm. uh, and the funny animal genre as, as a whole. And it's uh, and how it quickly gets his own series. And again, it is it is it doesn't last for very long, but it's uh, only a couple of years under, under Gerber. Mm -hmm. But it's um, and nobody else really since has been able to follow Gerber. This. People have, many people have tried. Nobody right. really get, gets it. It was such a personal series for Gerber. Um, but it is a, a level of satire of American society, of American politics, blended again with characterization that, with, with Howard as this sort of curmudgeon with, with, uh, with a genuine sen sense of morality. And even uh, Beverly Switzler, his, his female companion, who starts off as being sort of the parody damsel in distress and again becomes this three-dimensional character in the course of the series. This is, again, this is a series that reads as if it was written, if it wasn't for the political references of the time, including Howard running for president in 1976, <laughs> it reads as if it was written today yeah. with the level of sophistication that you, that you expect from the best writers of comics today. Um, with his... For, with his writing partner, Mary Screens, Steve Gerber also co-created with artist Jim Mooney, the series Omega the Unknown, mm. this enigmatic science fiction series about this 
superhuman being from another world who's almost completely mute, who ends up in Hell's Kitchen, Manhattan, back before Frank Miller set their doll there <laughs> and before it became the gentrified area of New York it is today, um, and who has this strange bond with this mysteriously precocious child, mm -hmm. James Michael Starling, who is named after James Michael Starling, another of the stars mm. of this period. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. I didn't know that. And again, this amazing experimental work that most people sort of ignored at the time, but decades later, yep. so, you know, so, so gets rediscovered. Yeah. I think that it's just such a shame that, that Steve Gerber died so, some years back because I have a feeling like with the new attention that the mass media and academia are now paying to, to comics, Gerber, Gerber's rediscovery is an, was inevitable. I, mm -hmm. wish he, I wish when it comes he would have been here to see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, other writers of the period, Doug Metch, who is Marvel's sort of like all, all-purpose writer, who's one of the, like Bill Mantlo, who's one of the all-purpose writers uh, at Marvel. But Metch was like everywhere. He did superhero books, but he also, he, he was on the writer on Werewolf by Night. He mm -hmm. was on the, he was the writer. He co-created co Moon Knight, another one of them, uh, who was sort of like a, a costume vigilante who who was sort of like Marvel's new version of like the Shadow and, and characters, the, the pulp vigilante crime fighters of the 30s. Um, he, was, he was writing uh, like Planet of, the, Planet of the Apes and Doc Savage. Marvel was doing all these licensed properties back then. Uh, so, um, he was writing Deathlock, the cyborg character that was created by Rich Buckler. Uh, he, and best of all was since Marvel was tapping into all of these things that were going on pop culture. One of the things was martial arts craze that most, you know, most uh, inspired by the movies that Bruce Lee was doing back mm -hmm. then. And so uh, it was Engelhart and Starlin who created the series Master of Kung Fu, which is sort of like blending a Bruce Lee-type figure, this, this noble, lone war martial artist, supreme martial artist, who's basically dedicated to peace, but, you know, cross his path and you don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah. Blending that with the old, with the, with the old pop culture character Fu Manchu, the, mm -hmm. the, the politically incorrect Asian mastermind, who Marvel at that point had the comic book rights to, which is why when Shang-Chi Chang, Master of Kung Fu shows up today in the comics, they just refer to his father as his father, <laughs> because we don't. Marvel doesn't have the rights of Fu Manchu anymore, and Fu Manchu is a troublesome figure anyway. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Mench took over this series, and again, he made it into the uh, again this this astonishing sort of uh, again influenced by things like James Bond, but also things like Milton Kniff's Terry and the Pirates, about, about movies from the '30s and '40s, about spy spy novels by other writers and Ian Fleming, uh, teamed with Paul Galassi, who was greatly influenced by Steranko, but was a, a tremendously wonderful art, artist with a realistic style in his own right. Mm -hmm. Again, classic material. Uh, also, we have Don McGregor, who was, again, another one of these guys, working on, had an editorial staff job, working under Roy Thomas, 
McGregor ended up doing work on two series of this period. One was the Black Panther. Of course, this was the first important Af black superhero in American comics. Mm -hmm. And by the 70s, he was in a, he, he had gotten his own series in a book that was titled, unfortunately, Jungle Action. But McGregor took over, and you know what I was saying about Roy, sort of pioneer in the long saga. McGregor took this way further. Again, he was again he was a big student of a, the great adventure novels and films of the past, and he was he turned out to be another master of characterization. And with the Panther's Rage storyline that went on for well over a year, maybe two years, in jungle action, mm -hmm. he created what the late Dwayne McDuffie, uh, animation writer and former Marvel editor, yeah. uh, has termed one of the first true graphic novels, even though it was published in serial form because it had that kind of depth of plot plot construction, of, char of characterization, this enormous cast, each member of whom, whether it was the panther or the villains or the supporting characters, each one of whom had a complexity to them that was worked out over this extended period, and, and this sort of unity of storytelling that went throughout. So again, way ahead of its time. McGregor was also known for the Kill Raven series. Now this is something that, again, Marvel moving into the in the 70s. Why is Marvel moving into these other areas? Well, part of it is because in the, in the 60s, you wonder, why is Marvel publishing so few, so, such a relatively small number of books? Because in the 50s, apparently Atlas, Marvel, previous name for Marvel, was, I've read, the second biggest comics publisher in the United States, right out of the Dell. How come it's just a handful of books in the 60s? Well, it's because after all the turmoil in the comics industry with the anti-comics movement in the 50s, publisher Martin Goodman ended up having to make a distribution deal with a company that was called Independent, but was actually affiliated with DC. Mm. And the deal was you can only publish a certain number of books. In 1968, they got a... Goodman got a new deal mm. and the line with a company called Curtis Circulation and so the Marvel line begins to expand. This is another reason why Stan needed Roy. Roy needed all these other writers and artists to come in. Um, and so it's like in 68 you've got, whereas Captain America and Iron Man for example start, shared tales of suspense. Each got half the book. Well, all the split books like that got got turned. They got the characters got their own books. So you've got Captain America by Stan and Jack. You've got and you've got Iron Man written by this new guy Archie Goodwin. You've got you know Doctor Strange and and Shield Shield by Stranko, Strange written by Roy. You've got um, Hulk getting his own book, and you've got Samaritan being written by Roy. Anyway, so. Not only could they do that, but they could expand, hugely expand the line mm -hmm. of comics. And so they, instead of doing what Marvel and, or DC would do nowadays, which would be, let's have 100 more Avengers books and 100 more Batman books, they, said they were much more into, 
Well, they did some of that because you got Marvel Team Up, for example, Spider-Man's companion book. But you got, uh, but they were much more interested, it seems, in the seventies in branching into other genres, one of which is science fiction. Kill Raven, War of the Worlds, which turned into the Kill Raven series, named after its title character, was intended as a sequel to H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, set a hundred years later. War of the Worlds was public domain in the U.S., though yeah. not in the U.K. Hmm. Um, and Kill Raven was this free, was this gladiator who had been trained to fight for the Martian entertainment in the arena, and who, like Spartacus, escaped, became a freedom fighter. And again, it was originally created by an unusual bunch of people, Roy Thomas, I think Jerry Conway, <laughs> <laughs> and two artists, Neil Adams and Howard Chaikin. Wow. And, but it, it became a classic when McGregor, with his, again, with his, with his uh, skill of characterization and his passion for creating this sort of like Monday rom- romantic heels, not in the sense of love affairs, but in mm-hmm. the sense of this grand romantic epic, paired with an up-and-coming artist, P. Craig Russell, mm-hmm. and who more recent re- readers will know for, for example, his work on Sandman and other projects with Neil Gaiman. And again, another one of these classics, just an amazing time at, at Marvel. You have this other, another new artist, Jim Starlin, mm. who comes in during this period who, well, we've got Shaken. I already mentioned Shaken. Shaken goes on to create this series about this about this uh, this sort of Monday swashbuckler who works for money, Dominic Fortune, mm-hmm. which is in the back of the Rapaging Hulk mag- magazine for a while, mm-hmm. whose whose uh, main story, main Hulk stories, are being written by the um the present Doug Mensch, mm-hmm. and being drawn by another newcomer to Marvel in the seventies, Walt Simonson. Mm-hmm. So you've got. So you've got Shaken, and you've, then you've got, uh, and Shaken also is the artist that Roy brings uses for another project for expanding the science fiction holdings of Marvel in the 70s, around 76, again, New X-Men time, because there's this guy named George Lucas who is a big Marvel Comics fan and who, it turns out, was a silent partner in one of the early one of the earliest direct sales comic shops, Super Snipe, on the Upper West East Side, hmm. where I used to shop myself and mm-hmm. once saw Roy Thomas. Yeah. So it was, um, and Lucas was a silent partner in that store. And all these things moved full together. Anyway, so Lucas, it, Lucas contacted Marvel saying, well, he was working on this little science fiction movie. Yeah. <laughs> Hadn't come out yet, but wouldn't it be great, since Marvel was doing licensed properties back then, wouldn't it be great if, if, if Marvel did an adaptation of this movie and Roy really pushed for it and he got shaken to draw it and the first issues of Marvel's adaptation of Star Wars, which was, I think, adapted in six, six issues, mm-hmm. I think the first three came out before the movie did. Oh, wow. And it's because of that comic book that I was there on opening day for the movie. Nice. Before... And, and uh, I should also mention that, speaking of... So anyway, Starlin... i got two more, I think, before we can finish this okay. one. But it's like Starlin, artists who came in in the 70s, during, again, during the Roy regime, and it's, uh, 
knew knows all these other guys. No, you know, friends with Shaken and Simon mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and so. And it's um, one of his earliest assignments at Marvel. Well, a couple of issues of Iron Man, like Iron Man Fifty Five, I think, yeah. in which he introduces this this sort this sort of seemingly alien, super strong Avenger named Drax, and this and this sort of uh, and this alien godlike villain named Thanos. Mm-hmm. And again, <laughs> this is where history begins. Before the decade is out. Starlin is doing these cosmic epics involving yeah. Thanos and Drax and other characters he creates, like Gamora, and in series like Captain Marvel and and uh, Warlock, which is based Warlock being based being based Captain Marvel being based on a character Stanley and Gene Cohen created in the sixties, and Adam Warlock being based on the character him whom Stan Jack created in FF. And let's see, Starlin and Oh yeah, the other thing I wanted to get to is in terms of expanding, diversifying what what Marvel was doing beyond superheroes. And again, one of Roy's big things. Roy was the one who really talked Stan into adapting Star Wars. Yes. Good thing he did too, because according to Jim Shooter. You know, comics were in a bad state in the 70s. Even though, I mean, books were regularly selling in hundreds of thousands of copies, things that would make your eyes pop these days. But nonetheless, this was before the rise of the direct sales market when comics were still being sold in newsstands and mom-and-pop stores, and that market was declining for various reasons. And if you talk to people like Chaikin, they'll tell you that, you know, we went to the comics in the 70s. We, everybody told us it was only going to last a few more years. Yeah. But according to Jim Shooter, it's because of the great success of the Star Wars comic that saved Marvel mm-hmm. from going under. Yeah, according to him. Anyway, another thing that Roy really fought for, and that started in 1970, was Marvel expanding into sword and sorcery when Marvel picked up the rights to Conan the Barbarian, the character created by the late pulp writer Robert E. Howard back in the 30s, which had recently gotten a revival in paperbacks, which reprinted the Howard stories, but also had Howard had worked out a chronology of Conan's life, mm-hmm. and the science fiction fantasy writers El Spray de Camp and Lynn Carter wrote new stories that set in other periods of Conan's life that Howard had not gotten to, and these were published in tra- paperbacks, which were very successful in the 60s. That Roy pushed for Marvel to pick up the right comic book rights, and again, this astonishing body of work, because even Roy claimed at the beginning not to be a sword and sorcery fan, it was, um, this immediately took to this. He found his voice, voice writing this material, and he did this remarkable body of work, first with Barry Windsor Smith, new, new arriving artist from England, part of the first of the British invasion of comics mm-hmm. creators who, inspired by the Silver Age comics, to arrive in America, and right at the John Buscema, Roy for 10 years in Conan the Barbarian in the magazine Savage Sword of Conan and in other comics. He created this amazing body of work. In the, com- in the regular comic, it was like going each year of the comic was another year in Conan's life, starting mm. from like the very first Conan story that Howard had written, earliest chronological in Conan's life story that Howard had written. 
and Savage Sword of Conan, the black and white magazine. They were doing stories from Conan's later life. But it is this astonishing body of work that Roy did for 10 years as Conan writer. And along the way, um, taking bit pieces of two characters, the subord subsidiary characters in old Howard story, obscure Howard stories, and merging them into the character we now know as Red Sonia. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take a breath now. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I've gotten through a lot of the big stars who What's have arrived at that era. Oh, yes, yeah. and in 1979, Frank Miller shows up <laughs> yeah. and starts on Daredevil. And we'll talk about him yeah. more in the 80s. Well, you I, I, was, you know, I, was just, I was curious, and I don't know how much we know, why Marvel was doing so much licensed stuff. I mean, they were expanding all the, into all these different areas for their own properties, but you had talked about you know all these various licenses and yeah Star Wars maybe did a lot to help save the company but they wouldn't have known that it was just no. why were they taking on all these different properties that weren't theirs I think uh, the fact that you asked the question shows how much the industry has changed since mm -hmm. then because it was I think it was sort of typical because way back in the 40s uh, timely Marvel Marvel, under its name back then, was licensing Mighty Mouse. It's like uh, it was just something that comic companies did. Were was DC doing a DC, lot of that? DC did not do as much of that, mm. but but DC did do some of it. For example, you have DC doing the Shadow in the seventies. Mm -hmm. mm. um, so it's um, so why Marvel was doing it in such a big way. I. I don't know, but it, it obviously made sense to them at the time because, again, the books were selling in the hundreds of thousands so that you know, Marvel was making money off these things. Yeah. The, the people who are licensing the properties were making money off it. And there weren't as many comic book companies back then either. Hmm. And so, again, you know, so George Lucas comes to Marvel to ask that they be they license hmm. books. Well, also, I mean, think of it this way. I'm like Dell Comics, um, which was um, Dell Comics in the 50s and part of the 60s, they were um, publishing comics that were produced by a company called Western Publishing. And then Western Publishing shifted and they came out under the Gold Key, uh, imp uh, it's Gold Key Comics instead of Dell. But Western was basically licensing things left and right. Well, mm. They lessened the comic book rights to Disney comics and Warner Brothers comics and Hanna-Barbera comics. So sure. again, this is a big de deal. Yeah, this is something comic book companies did. And if you were and if you were like Lucas, somebody who wanted to do a comic, have a comic book of your property, then you would go to a company like Gold Key or, to, or in this case, Lucas recognized that Marvel would be the best place. Rather than the say the, rather than a kitty company, sure. like, or or the stodginess of DC <laughs> at that period, um, so um, and so there are lots and lots. It's like back back then. Uh, it's like um, also in the seventies you have, and I think that people like Roy were probably e eager to get some of these properties, like Doc Savage, uh, the great pulp hero of the thirties and forties. I'm, I'm sure that. That Roy would, would have been was happy when mm -hmm. Marvel got the rights to that character. He mm -hmm. had the rights to Fu Manchu and built something out of that. Had the rights to Godzilla. Yeah, oh yeah. And I mean, it didn't last very long. But you know, Godzilla fighting Marvel superheroes. Yeah, it's yeah, how yeah. bad is this? <laughs> it's like, uh, or 
that's a story I came across this week when I was doing my research for uh-huh. uh-huh. this podcast that Bill Mantlow, okay, didn't mention enough about Bill Mantlow. Bill Matlow, who was, again, one of these omnipresent writers mm-hmm. of the period over the course of his Bill's career at Marvel. Uh, he co-created Cloak and Dagger. He also did the story that established, and he's not given enough credit for this, he did the story that established that Bruce Banner has multiple personality syndrome mm-hmm. that comes from psychological abuse when he was a child. Mm-hmm. Everybody has built on this since then. Yeah. It was Matlow who introduced him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I came across a story that Matt Lowe was with his, with his son at a toy store, I think, and the, and the kid got, and the kid got really excited when he saw this new line of toys called the Micronauts, mm. and Matt Lowe was looking at them, and he went back to Marvel, and I guess he talked to Roy or, who, or whoever was a, if Roy was still, was Roy still editor at that time? Oh, anyway, he talked to people at Marvel, and he said maybe he talked to Stan himself. But Stan was still in the office till, as a publisher till '78, and he said, "Well, I re- I'd really like to do a comic book about these toys. Can we license them?" Mm-hmm. So that was like a writer at Marvel, again, like Roy ta- Roy talked Stan into into Star sure. Wars and Conan. Matlow got this idea. Well, let's go out and license this yeah. stuff. No, we it, did, yeah. and, and it turned into a and Micronauts under Matlow and Mike Golden. Start, which started in the 70s. Uh, look at all these people who are arriving at Marvel in the 70s. Yeah. All these legends. It's, uh, it was one of Marvel's best books of, of, of the time. It was... Um, yeah. And, and uh, I'm trying to think... Uh, I think Marvel had Star Trek for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of... Now, Marvel seems... And Marvel still has some interest, in sure, because yeah. you know that's the Stephen King books yep. that you folks have been doing. But it just it was like a different volume yeah. at that time. That's a different volume, and it's sort of understandable. It may also have to do with the fact that Marvel, you know, owned by a small company, mm. like, I, I, in the seventies, Good, Martin Goodman had sold it to this company with Chemical in the title. I mean, it's like, what what is that? I mean, now Marvel is, of course, owned by Disney. Yeah. And DC is now owned by Warner Brothers. And so they're much more interested. These, so the more corporate big two of the present day are obviously much more interested in pushing their own characters than in licensing other companies' mm-hmm. characters. So, but nonetheless, whenever I see, you know, Marvel Conan classics... Mm. From or Marvel Star Wars classics from Dark Horse, mm. I think why why? <laughs> but luckily, it seems my understanding is that now that Mar- Marvel and Lucasfilm are both arms of Disney, that Star Wars is coming back, which yeah. makes makes sense. But still, you know, I'm glad this stuff is still out yeah. there. But no, 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 because it's like <laughs> it's like if you look at Marvel advertising in the '70s, it's like yeah, and you see like heads of Marvel ca- superheroes, and then there's Conan because Mark, yep. and you know. I, I think more people know Conan as a comic book character, thanks to Marvel, Probably. than they do as a, uh, you know, as these pulp novel, pulp fiction characters reprinted in those paperbacks. Yeah. Before we kind of run down some of the some of the characters you didn't cover, because you covered a lot already yeah. in that, <laughs> I want to talk about uh, a story from 1971, which was, mm-hmm. of course, that back in the late 50s or early 60s, when when a lot of the Wortham stuff was going on, the Comics Code was established to. Police oh, comics. Yes. 
But in 71, for the first time since Marvel had become Marvel, we end up publishing a story that does not carry the comics code. It's a, it's a Stanley issue of Amazing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. deals with Harry Osborn yep. uh, experimenting with drugs. Um, and I decided to go without it. How, how did that... What's a little background on that Background story? on that yeah. is that the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare asked Stan to do a story that would teach kids... Stay away from drugs. Drugs are bad for you. And again, you know, this is not really, it's not unlike George Lucas coming to Marvel and Mm -hmm. said, it's like, there aren't that many comic book companies, but Marvel already had this reputation. You know, in the 60s, Marvel got its Rolling Stone cover. It's like Marvel was already getting this reputation for having an audience that isn't just small children, but is, you know, college-age kids. And, And so it's like, and so the government actually comes to Stan and asks, can you, can you do something? And Stan, of course, says yes. <laughs> but you see, the Comics Code, now the Comics Code was instituted by the comics industry after the big scandals of the 50s when doc, Dr. Wordham and the, the Dr. Doom of his era and, <laughs> and Congress were going after comics as these creators of juvenile delinquency. It's all like the way they treat video games in more recent years. You know, yeah. it's like, blame, blame the media. So it's like, uh, or as I think Stan himself pointed out, you know, you know, Wordham was saying, well, all the ki- juvenile delinquent kids were reading comics. Well, they were all drinking milk when they were kids, too. And yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, did that turn them evil? It's like, but anyway, so in response, so the government would not come in and impose censorship, the comics industry put together this thing called the Comics Code, the standard of, these standards and practices by which they would abide to make sure that people could be Guaranteed the comics would be above board and wouldn't corrupt your children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the code also sort of outlined all the, all the kind of horror stuff that EC did. So, you know, EC was finished except for Mad Magazine. And all that'll teach you for getting us in trouble. EC comics apparently was the attitude. And, um, and um, so one of the things that, among the things that the code, comics code, forbade was any mention of drugs whatsoever, mm. even to tell people that drugs are bad. Mm-hmm. And Stan, of course, re- realized this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you know, the code would not approve this, this story. It was a three-parter in which Harry Osborne gets hooked on these drugs, of, these pills. Of, right. They're never really they don't specify. It's never specified. Yeah. But you know this is a bad thing. And the Green Goblin's in it, too. And mm-hmm. the perceptive reader will realize that the Green Goblin's was was driven mad by by chemicals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's... Uh, so um, Stan and Martin Goodman, still publisher at the time, mm-hmm. so let's give Goodman credit, Goodman credit, too. They said, well, we're going to publish it without the code seal. Yeah. And so they were brave to do it, and they were right. And it got a lot of... It, Got a lot of good publicity from Marvel. It was well, very well received, and as a result, the comics co- code got modified that year, and not just so that well now we can do anti-drug stories, mm. because uh, you know I guess that so this would be before say the famous Green Lantern Green Arrow story that Daniel Deal and Neil Adams, Marvel vets already did over at DC. 
but they also modified the code in other ways so that, for example, well, we're not going, you know, can't do the kind of gruesome modern day horror that EC did. We're still not going to let you do that, but you can do classic horror. Hmm. And that's why, why we get, so Marvel said, okay, so, you know, because, you know, EC had, of course, established horror as a major genre in comics. Yeah. So, so Marvel had this huge horror line that started with, you know, genuine clap. You have Tomb of Dracula by Wolfman and Colin, mm-hmm. and you've had, Roy came up with the idea of Werewolf by Night, which is sort of inspired by I was, the movie I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Mm-hmm. And you have Monster Frankenstein with the omnipresent Doug Mensch, <laughs> and who was also writing Werewolf, and and wonderful art by Mike Plug, who is also mm. major artist on Man Thing. And you have Man Thing showing up, yep. sort of simultaneously with Swamp Thing, but they're both inspired by fifties uh, fifties uh, uh, comic character called the Heap, yep. and um, and you have the Ghost Rider. Yep. Thank you, Gary Friedrich. And so, uh, which, which is sort of like horror superhero, but mm-hmm. it's... Um, and uh, also, but because you, you still couldn't go like all the way in horror, mm-hmm. there were still limitations, Marvel, now that they had this new distributor, had what they called the Curtis magazine, what was called the Curtis magazines line, black mm. and white magazines that were not bound by the comics code. Mm. And this is so. This is where you had Savage sort of Conan. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so there were no. So you, Marvel could set its own limitations as to how far they could go with sex and nudity and violence. So 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 women that John B. Summer drew in Savage sort of Conan could be topless, for example. <laughs> uh, but you could also have. But this was also a good place for the horror magazine. Magazine, so you had you know Tomb of Dracula in the color comics, but you had Dracula Lives in the, in the black and whites. And you also, and this was a way for Marvel also to be reaching out to a more adult audience. So, um, so, so the stand sort of uh, challenging the comics code yeah. in '71 had a lot of impact for the comics industry. Yeah. And, um, and Marvel. You had, we talked a lot about the creators who came in, but at what point did, you know, Stan moves uh, to publisher, what point, where does, you know, Jack go and then Steve Ditko, and how does, you know... Okay. Yeah. Steve Ditko had left in the 60s, and in mid-60s, which is when John Romita Sr. came in on, as Spider-Man artist. Um, now, why did Stan, Steve Ditko and... And Jack Kirby go. It's uh, Jack left in 1970. Well, it's be, again there are various stories, but um, some of it is that Stan, because of the Marvel method of st- storytelling back then, left a, left all you know left a lot of the pacing and the plotting of the stories to his artists, especially with Ditko and Kirby, who were particularly good at plotting. So that as to so I think it's after maybe the first eight issues of Amazing Spider-Man that Ditko is pretty much taking over plotting it. And he's even getting credited on the fi- on his later issues as uh, plotting the stories. And with Kirby, it's like, you know, John. I think I mentioned before that John Romita Sr. can testify that 
having witnessed Stan and Jack plotting sessions, but Stan, but Jack was obviously doing a lot of it and more as mm-hmm. it went on. And um, they felt that they weren't getting enough credit. They were, weren't getting enough money. I think that they were. Um, they felt they had didn't have enough creative freedom because obviously Stan, as the writer and as the editor, had the final say. Um, on, on what the stories were, and you know, and you th- if, if you think of like Stan's politics and Steve Ditko's politics, you can yeah. see that there's a difference here. <laughs> sure. um, and there are, and there are examples. I mean, I've I, I that I've seen from like studying some of Jack's original pages, where because he'd write notes in the margin as to what he thought was going, what he wanted to have going on in the panels, and you can see, and there are cases I've come across where Stan disagrees with that. And changes what the character's talking about, or what the or the interpretation, of what the character's doing. So it's like they wanted more creative freedom. Various factors. So so Dit, Ditko ends up. Uh, Ditko go, goes to DC, creates the Creeper and other the Hawk and the Dove. Mm-hmm. Eventually returns to Marvel. But he never goes near Spider-Man or Doctor Strange. Hmm. It's always other stuff characters that he's drawing. Uh, but he's never really has the bigger impact at Marvel again, either. Um, Kirby, on the other hand, leaves in 1970, goes to D.C. where he creates the famous Fourth World books, New Gods, Forever People, Mr. Miracle, uh, as well as Commandy and the Demon. And, but, and so he spent several years doing this, but the books don't sell up to DC's expectations. Again, there's a certain amount of controversy. How, unsuc- you know, were these books really successful? What was really, what was really going on there? But Kirby also did again doesn't feel like he was getting the creative freedom that he really wanted because DC, his original plan, for example, was to start the New Gods books and then have other people take them over, and DC said, "No, we want you. We keep drawing them." And, <laughs> um, so it wasn't working out. So in the mid in the mid 70s he comes back to Marvel. He does lots and lots of covers. He takes but this time he's writing and drawing stuff. And so he takes over Captain America, uh, which is now Captain America and the Falcon, and where he introduces Arnim Zola while he's back. He creates a new series called The Eternals about a new race of immortal be superhuman beings living on Earth who were once mistaken for gods, and which I tend to think of as the last truly great Kirby series, mm. recently revived by Neil Gaiman, uh, which is sort of testament to how, how good it really was. Um, he does, uh, creates Devil Dinosaur, which at the time, you know, a lot of people didn't like it because it was sort of more aimed, it was more of like a kid's book. And it's a... Uh, that was the audience who's, you know, the audience is changing for comics and for Marvel is changing rapidly. And with Devil Dinosaur, it's like Kirby is still aiming for like the, the, the young kids mm-hmm. audience. And so the older readers don't like, now of course it's a cult classic. Uh, what else? Well, another case of not just moving into science fiction, but also licensed properties. 2001 mm-hmm. A Space Odyssey. Right. Which Kirby which uh, Kirby adapts a movie and then does new stories involved based on the concepts like a monolith. And this is, he introduces Machine Man as a character in this series who goes on to have his own Marvel, 
and Marvel owns that one, so yeah. goes on to have his own extensive Marvel history. And what else uh, have we got at this period? Uh, oh, and uh, another license, probably one that didn't get off the ground for a while. Stan Jack was working on an adaptation of the cult TV show The Prisoner mm-hmm. for Marvel, but that didn't happen. Although you can still there are still pages, uninked mm. pages that you can find wow. on the internet from that. So it's uh. So, but anyway, Kirby again. So he was he was writing and drawing a number of series for Marvel, but again, but these didn't have. They're more rega- highly regarded by comics aficionados now than I think they were at the time. Right. I mean, again, it's like the synergy that Stan and Jack and Stan and Steve Ditko had is what created the magic. And Stan, but working with. Uh, working with other creators. I mean, it's not that, I don't think it's that, it should be that surprising, you know. Stanley stops writing the comic books in around 72 because he becomes publisher, but also it's two years after Jack leaves. Hmm. And and Ditko is long gone. Yeah. I would, uh, that synergy is no longer, he never had the same creative synergy with the other, with the other artists. And, you know, as remarkable as a lot of Ditko's work on his own, or a lot of, like, like the new gods and the eternals are, again, it's still not at the level of greatness that you have when it's Stan and Jack working together or Stan and Steve Ditko working yeah. together. And so the sales weren't as, for the Kirby stuff in the mid-70s, weren't as good as had been hoped. Again, Kirby was dissatisfied. It wasn't. And a new opportunity arose, which was doing work in animation. He was mm-hmm. now based in California. And in animation, he was being paid much better than he was getting paid in comics back in these pre-royalty days in the 70s. And he was, and they're also doing things like giving him health plans, and I think he might have even given him a pension, so it's like... <laughs> the animation treated Kirby right. Nice. So although he ended up you know, working on some, uh, uh, on a Fantastic Four ser- animated series, mm-hmm. so it's not completely dissevered from Marvel. Okay, and uh, Stan remained publisher, 72 to 78, still working in New York, still had input into the comics. Not as much, though. I I came across a a quote from Roy saying, you know, after Roy wrote, like, the first couple of issues of a series for Stan, would basically stop reading the series (laughs) because he could trust Roy. So it's like... um, but he still had. But I've I've read stories about like the creation of characters, like the Punisher, all the characters where Stan has a lot of input into mm-hmm. into it. He's talking with the writers about what to do. But in '78, Stan moves west to start to, to trying to push Marvel characters into TV and movies. And this is a long mm-hmm. quest. Yeah. And of course, <laughs> it finally succeeds triumphantly. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's when Stan pretty much. So at that point, now Jim Salica long-time Marvel editor who started at Marvel in the 70s, he keeps telling me that that is the, the true golden age of Marvel as far as he's concerned. When Stan, in the 70s, when, when Roy and company were there, but Stan was still in the office mm. and still there to be talk, consulted and still had, still had his oar in with the comics. Yes. And, but, but again, he goes west in the 78th. And so by that time, 78, which is when Jim Shooter comes back oh. on staff yeah. and, be, and becomes editor, and becomes editor chief, yeah. I think, at seventy eight. Yes. I wanna I wanna wrap that's oh, uh, that's yeah. when uh, that's when the, the, the torch has been passed. I wanna I wanna circle back and wrap up with that, but before we do, I wanna touch on a couple more characters we haven't gotten sure. to yet. 
Um, two characters we haven't mentioned yet who definitely seized upon the whole, like you talked about with Shang-Chi, jumping on trends that were popular in culture and who ended up getting linked and who have sustained to this day. And that'd be Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Yeah. Who definitely tackled kind of two different genres and, thank and you. ended up being mesh. And thank you because I was just thinking of another giant who arrived in the 70s who I hadn't mentioned yet, and this will give me a chance. Okay, once again, Marvel is looking at diversifying into other genres, science fiction, horror, martial arts, uh, reviving, the, reviving pulp characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and the case, and another thing that's going on at, in pop culture in the early 70s is what's called the black exploitation movies, mm-hmm. which are, I mean, the best known is, is Shaft. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, keep in mind, again, this is like the, the civil rights movement, the modern civil rights movement is a phenomenon of the early 60s. So this is like only 10 years later. I mean, you know, apart from Sidney Poitier, you know, can you think of a black movie star of the early 60s? No. But by the 70s, we have African-Americans starring in action-adventure films like Richard Roundtree and Shaft. And so Marvel is trapping into this by create with Luke Cage, Power Man, and Archie Goodwin is, does, does it at first, but and Don McGregor is one of the writers later on. And it's, uh, no, and Luke Cage is like he's he's a, he's a, he was escaping from prison. He was subjected to this experiment that gave him super, super strength and bulletproof skin. He's he has he's sort of, he's a hero for hire. Mm-hmm. He take he he will be he will defend take superhero go into superhero action if he finds a client who'll pay him to do it. <laughs> but he's got an office on Times Square way before Disney. <laughs> to, to, you know, but when Times Square, was, I remember the old Times Square when it was yeah. horrendous. It was like all these porn movie theaters, and and you know, I, I have a friend who's friend who, who who had a friend who saw somebody got shot on Forty Second Street. It was way different back then, and so you know, now you look at this stuff and you say, say, oh my gosh! I mean, I'm little kids going around saying "Sweet Christmas." It seems. <laughs> So, so, so tinny and stereotypical. Mm-hmm. But at the time, this, these were liberating images for, you know, uh, because it was like black people being a, able to be heroes of action-adventure movies, mm. you know, something which was a really new phenomenon. So now Iron Fist, of course, these two characters get paired later on. Yeah. Iron Fist is, part, again, this is moving into the market. This is trying to tap into the martial arts field art genre that's becoming popular, important in popular culture of the time, Instead, whereas Shang-Chi, it's sort of like looks to the Bruce Lee movies and also looks to Fu Manchu. Um, Iron Fist has, Roy Thomas has a big hand in this. Yep. Roy doesn't get credit for a yeah, lot of the... I'm kidding, he's everywhere. Uh, he's everywhere because he's editor-in-chief and he's he has a hand in creating a lot of the characters in this period, even though his, he's not the writer of the original stories. You know, so he has a hand in the new X-Men, he has a hand in Ghost Rider, he has a hand in Man-Thing, he has a hand in Iron, Iron Fist. Uh, it's like, um, I think, and apparently he, and this one this sort of had, the background here is sort of like the, the, the stories, like, like mystic realms like Shangri-La in, in La, the movie and book Lost Horizon. Mm-hmm. So Kun Lun is sort of like 
is based on Shangri-La and a lot of the, these sort of mystical a Asian lands in, in fiction of the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, Iron Fist felt, what, what would happen is that a lot of the newcomers to Marvel who ended up getting staff jobs, they were given writing on the side because you couldn't make a living right, working for what Marvel paid people back then. I know this seems weird now, <laughs> especially when you consider these books were selling hundreds of thousands of copies back then. But the you know the, the actual creators and the editors weren't getting much, much money, so editors would get to write things on the side. And before Len asked them to do X Men, Chris Claremont got assigned to do Iron Fist, and it was on Iron Fist. It wasn't the first time he'd worked with him, but it was on Iron Fist that he got paired up with another British-born mm. comics creator who loves. Silver Age Marvel Comics, but this one didn't grow up in America. This one grew up in Canada, and this was John Byrne, mm -hmm. who became a team, and the Claremont Byrne team became something to notice. And on Iron Fist, and when Dave, when the new X Men series became monthly, since Dave Cockrum couldn't at that point do keep up with a monthly schedule, he, Byrne became the the artist on X Men and co-plotter by the late 70s. And the Claremont Byrne team, so to me, it's sort of like the second Stan and Jack. Mm. They have, they were, it's like X-Men in the late 70s was the start of what's become a universe within the Marvel Universe. Mm. Right. And it's like every issue or two of X-Men was a new co new concepts, new set in a new place, even, even a new variation on the action-adventure genre. It was just this amazing creativity. And again, it comes from the synergy of Claremont and Byrne combining forces, jointly plotting these, coming up with ideas. And this would end up having some of the same sort of tensions that Stan mm -hmm. and Jack did. But nonetheless, it is this... The 70s ends with this bang. It's like, if the beginning of the 70s is the start of the passing of the guard with the new generation coming in to take over writing and drawing these books while some of the old timers like Gene Colan, John Romita and John B. Simmer are still of course very active the 70s ends with a bang with Claremont Byrne on X-Men and Frank Miller starting to draw Daredevil not writing it yet but starting it in 1976 two characters are introduced who at the time more efforts to kind of expand the cosmic universe and at the time not hugely regarded kind of blips for a long time but obviously with where we are right now became hugely important and that's star lord and rocket raccoon mm. who were introduced the same year which was interesting to me um they're, they're and, and also yeah. i mean the concept of the guardians of the galaxies yeah goes back to the late sure. 60s yeah and it was um uh, created by Arnold Drake and Gene Colan, mm -hmm. understands editorship, mm -hmm. and it was very different. It was this. There was a the, the central character Vance Astro was an astronaut from the 20th century who had transported and been transported into the far future, where he teamed up with these various other beings, who were mostly from mostly from other planets. The, yeah, right. the idea was Earth had colonized the solar yeah, system planets, and that people were genetically modif 
fight, fight to survive in their, those environments. And so, and, you know, Steve Gerber was writing a Guardians of the Galaxy series yeah. in the 70s with those Guardians. Um, Star-Lord, Star I've been yeah. recently been looking at Star-Lord, yeah, not even knowing of, I would get this question. Well, they're, they're kind of outside. Yeah, they feel like they don't fit mostly in. Originally, yeah. they were not... Right. Originally, they were considered not to be part of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. And Star-Lord especially is sort of amazing to me because it's... Um, you look at... The character has varied so much mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. its history because he keeps coming back and people keep doing completely new takes on him. But recently, I was... Thank you, Comixology. I recently was reading two of the very early Star-Lord stories. Mm-hmm. The very first one by Steve Englehart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... What impressed me here was that, especially knowing what Engelhart would do later, this version of Peter Quill, it's sort of like his mom is murdered by an alien when he's a child, when, he, when, he's, when he's young, and he grows up wanting to... It's sort of like, what if Batman's parents had been killed by aliens and then Batman won revenge and went crazy? <laughs> Because this is what happens with Peter Quill. He, he, dis- he d- bends all of his efforts growing up to becoming an astronaut. And, wa- and he actually gets into the space program. And why does he want to be an astronaut? So he can track down the alien who killed his mom. Well, it's sort of a big universe. How are you going to do that? He's out of his mind. And yet, he, may- he runs into this benevolent figure, this go- the god of the sun, supposedly, who puts him on the right path, who, who separates him from his madness. Right. And then I read another early Star-Lord story. This w- these were both in Marvel Preview magazine, one, yeah. of, the, one of the black and white magazines. Yeah. And this one is by the new team of Claremont and Byrne. And mm-hmm. in fact, the first John Byrne page I ever bought mm-hmm. was a Star-Lord page from this story. And it's a... F- it's a story that took up the whole magazine. In effect, it's a graphic novel before Marvel was doing graphic novels. But now Star-Lord is sort of like this commanding, heroic figure who prides himself on having le- left that roguish Peter Quill figure behavior behind and is sort of a mentor to these young guys. And it's mm-hmm. like, So again, it's like now, of course, he, the sort of raffish, rogue Star-Lord, that's, figure, that's the one that we're, we're more... Not this sort of godlike... Mm-hmm heroic figure so it's like um, so people keep changing their mind about what they want Star-Lord to be and finally he's hit the big time it only took like what 30-40 years (laughs) Uh, Rocket Raccoon I believe he was in a Matlow series The Sword and the Star again Matlow one of these um, and Match Omnipresent and uh, again so this not unlike Howard the Duck supporting Brought out a supporting character be- and captures, captures the interest of fans. But in uh, Rocket Raccoon's case, he later turned up in, um, in the Hulk. Mm-hmm. He was integrated, more quickly integrated into the Marvel Universe. He got his own miniseries that I remember that Mike Vignola yeah. drew. And, uh, and that's where, the, where the, pretty much the idea of Rocket Raccoon as not just, a, not just the amusing talking uh, record raccoon in outer space but this sort of swashbuckling figure yeah. that's yeah. where that miniseries is really where it started but you know what you were saying about how you know why aren't we do doesn't Marvel do, do as many licensed properties back then this is the, the good thing about 
as, as they do back then. Why, this is a good thing about Marvel developing its own properties. You take things that were obscure and you right. turn them into what turns out to be big stars of the present. Okay. Pause it and we'll wrap it. We're, we're losing the room. So to, so to kind of oh. bring things uh, bring things full circle, we started with Roy coming in and this infusion of new talent, and we had the revolving door of editors. Oh, now, oh yes, revolving yeah. door of editors because you got, you know, Stan had been there for first there was Joe Simon, very short time in the 40s. Stan was editor for, for 30 years, mm -hmm. and then you've got Roy, Len, Marv, Jerry, Conway. Archie Goodwin. Mm -hmm. Sherry Conway only stayed like a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and finally Jim Shooter. Yeah, the end and that's what I want to talk about. Jim Shooter kind of wrapping up the 70s. And, and, and one of the reasons why it was a revolving door is because all these guys really wanted to be writers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the staff job was to make money. And believe it or not, folks, the idea of Marvel back then and in my time, the 80s, was you stayed on staff until you got enough writing work so you yep. could leave. <laughs> <laughs> and But Shooter was a guy who actually wanted, actually wanted to be. But Shooter actually wanted to be an executive. He yeah. wanted to be editor-in-chief. Yeah, crazy. Ryan, anything you wanted to touch on before we... Uh, no. And Shooter was, Shooter's arrival was a good thing for Marvel because, I mean, we will get, next podcast we will get into the yes. Shooter controversies. But because you had all these... I mean, you had all these... Um, if you became an editor, became editor in chief, and then left at being editor in chief, you still edited your own books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even the people who didn't become editor in chief, like Engelhardt and Gerber, for example, had a great deal of leeway mm -hmm. in what they were doing in their books. It was very much a laissez-faire system at the time. But the downside of this was you had a lot of deadline trouble yeah. because be, write, being a writer and being an editor are different talent sets. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a. Uh, and so one of the things, and you had the infamous dreaded deadline doom, and lots of issues of comics coming out that were reprint issues caused the new story didn't come in on Ooh. time. Yeah. And the thing, and what Shooter did was Shooter when he came in, he he pretty much established the Marvel editorial hierarchy as it is today. Yeah. The editor and assistant editor system, and he got he got. He got the trains running on time. He, he, he pretty much eliminated the deadline dooms problems so that you know Marvel had spent the 70s expanding into this big comics company and sh you needed Shooter to get it running efficiently, to get it running the way a, good, a big comics company should. And next time we'll pick up in the 80s era with Shooter and with everything that's going on there. Peter, I want to thank you for joining us again. This is really interesting. We just yeah. got to let you go on this. This is my blind spot yeah. in Marvel history. I think for 70s, a lot of people. So, yeah. For a lot of people for our generation. Our, our generation, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, this was awesome. It's fascinating. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, we thank Peter again. Peter, where can people find you online if they want to find your musings? If they're not friends with you on Facebook? Is if there, they're is not there friends with you on Facebook. Uh, let's see. Just Google my name, and you will come across all these we'll articles that, yeah. you, that I've written for <laughs> blogs in the past. Uh, go to Amazon; you'll see tons and Goodreads, and you'll see tons and tons of books that I've worked Perfect. on. And if you actually know me, <laughs> or or introduce yourself to me with a nice fa message, you you can join my Facebook page. There you go. <laughs> Very good. All right. Until next time, guys. This is Marvel, your universe.